You're listening to Teaching from Midtown Fellowship, a Jesus-centered family on mission in Columbia, South Carolina. If you're interested in finding out more about us, our family of churches, or how to partner with us, go to midtowncolumbia.com. All right, today we will be finishing up, we'll be concluding our Lent series as we'll be looking at Jesus, specifically under the title, Jesus Triumphant in Tribulation. Jesus Triumphant in Tribulation. If you've been with us, you know that throughout this series, we've been working our way through Holy Week and the the days in the week before Jesus was crucified. And today we will take a look at Thursday, some call it Monday Thursday, specifically at the Garden of Gethsemane. To preface our time in the Word together today, there are times when we can seem to be losing but actually be winning. And there are also times when one can seem to be winning but actually have lost. To give an example, this is a case in my all-time favorite Disney movie, which is Aladdin. You can feel free to disagree with my choice, and you will be wrong, and that's okay. You have freedom in Christ to be wrong about my favorite Disney movie. And no, I have not seen the live action remake and I have no desire to do so because I don't know about you, but I prefer my childhood to be unruined. I prefer for it to be intact. So in case you're not familiar with the movie, it's an epic movie where the villain whose name is Jafar is on this quest for, for all power. He wants to be the most powerful being in the universe. He ultimately gets Aladdin to summon the genie for him and then he gets control over the genie, and the genie makes him this powerful sorcerer. But the problem for Jafar at that point is that he realizes that the genie is actually still more powerful than him. So then he commands with his final, his third and final wish that the genie make him, Jafar, also an all-powerful genie. What Jafar didn't think of at that point, and this is how he was ultimately defeated, he didn't think about the fact that being a genie came at a cost and that he, in fact, would also be confined to a lamp, and that would be his downfall. Before his downfall, it seems as if he has achieved absolute, ultimate, and supreme victory, but instead, the very thing that he thought would bring him victory actually brought his demise The very thing that he thought would give him everything he wanted actually caused him to lose everything he ever had. If we don't see things from a proper perspective, we'll confuse victory for defeat and defeat for victory every time. Today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture that shows Jesus Jesus in a situation where it looks like he's losing. The night that Jesus was abducted to be crucified, it was late that Thursday night, potentially early that Friday morning, looked like a defeat. We'll pick up this story after Jesus has had the Last Supper with his disciples. Judas has already left to go get the chief priests and the elders to come and arrest Jesus. We'll be in Matthew chapter 26. We have a pretty lengthy passage today. We'll be working through verses 36 through 55. Again, Matthew 26, we'll be working through verses 36 through 55. Let's pick it up at verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. 
This is Jesus and his disciples going to the Garden of Gethsemane. It's at the end of the day. Now, Jesus doesn't do at this point what we've seen him do over and over again throughout this week. Usually, as we've seen through, at the end of the day, Jesus went back to stay at a home in Bethany. But today, this Thursday, at the end of the day, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells his disciples to sit here while he goes over there to pray. So he's creating a little space between him and the disciples. Let's read on, verse 37. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. I don't know if you've ever been in a spot so difficult that the only people you want with you are your closest friends. But it's believed that Jesus was closest with Peter and the sons of Zebedee, James and John. So even though he told the rest of the disciples to stay back, he told those he was closest to to come with him a little bit further into the garden. He told them to stay with him. And it says he began to be sorrowful and troubled. The Greek word there for sorrowful means to, to make one sorrowful. It means to, to cause grief, to be in a state of heaviness. It's saying that this situation that Jesus is in, as he knows he's about to face the, the cross and also be tortured, to be scourged, these things have made him extremely sorrowful, that they have troubled, troubled his heart, that he's, he's been placed into this state of heaviness and he wants his friends to be with him. The verse says here that he began to be sorrowful and troubled. We've talked a lot about Jesus' emotional life in this series, and Jesus has talked about a lot about the fact that he was going to be killed prior to this night. He knows that it's going to happen, but yet it seems that this is where it really hits him emotionally. Our Savior, he was human like us. He experienced pain and sadness and heaviness. He knew this was coming, but it says right now he began to be sorrowful and began to be troubled. It seems the emotional weight of it all is crashing down on him. You've probably been there before where you've known something was going to happen. You knew something was coming, but yet you, you haven't experienced the emotional weight of it until it gets pretty close to that thing happening. And then you feel the sorrow, you feel the trouble the anguish in your heart it seems this is exactly what Jesus is experiencing right now in the dark, in the garden with only his closest of friends with him. Then in verse 38, it says, then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Then he's, let, he's letting now his friends in on how he's doing emotionally. So the verse prior just let us know how he was feeling. And now he's inviting his closest friends in on how he's doing. He's saying, my soul is very sorrowful. This word for very sorrowful is stronger than the, previous, than the word in the previous verse for sorrowful. It means to be grieved all around. It means to be intensely sad. One definition of this word that I saw said that it meant to be encompassed with grief. That Jesus is saying he, he's surrounded by grief. He can't escape it. He can't get out of the grief that he's experiencing, knowing the cross that he is looking towards. And he uses a phrase that's similar to one that we might say today, when we might say we're scared to death or maybe we love someone to death. Jesus is saying here that my soul is very sorrowful even to death. It's like Jesus is saying, I am grieved to death. He's sharing this with his friends, the ones he spent this, this, these years growing closer and closer with, this intimate moment 
with them. Jesus is no, he knows the chief priests and the elders are on the way to take him away to be crucified. Let's continue on, verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So even from there, he leaves the three disciples that he is closest with, and he goes on a little further on his own, and he falls on his face before the Father. Some of y'all have been there before when you know, man, I, I just got to talk to God. The only one that I, I want to be around right now is God himself. I need to fall down before him and seek his face. To fully grasp passages like these, I believe you have to picture Jesus doing this. This is Jesus, Savior, who has come to rescue us, experiencing so much anguish, and now he just falls down on his face before the Lord. Verse 40, and he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. So after having this time with the father for the first time, he goes and talks to his disciples, and they've fallen asleep on him. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine being at this point, being at this time of so much mental and emotional anguish, so much pain, and the ones that you have brought closest to you that you want to, to be there with you have fallen asleep in likely the most difficult time of Jesus' life to date? And so Jesus goes back and he prays and he submits himself to the will of the Father. Again, he has this relentless obedience to the Father. Even though he doesn't want to go to the cross, he, 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 he submits himself to the Father's will. He expresses this submission and then he goes back to them again and finds them sleeping again. Let's look at verse 43 and 44. And again, he came and found them sleeping for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So now he left them again for the third time and goes back to be with the Father and prays the same thing over again. Father, if there's a way that I don't have to go through this, that I don't have to deal with all of this pain and this condemnation that I'm going to experience, Father, let that be so. But as we know and are grateful for, he continued to submit himself to the will of the Father. He continued to be obedient. Continue on verse 45. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later, later on. See, the hour is at hand and the son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. He came back to the disciples and let them know that the time has come. The betrayer had Arrived. There was no more time for solitude. There was no more time for Jesus to just rest and have time alone with the Father. The beginning of the greatest act of evil that has ever been committed in the history of our world was at hand. Let's continue on, verse 47. While he was still speaking, while he's still talking to his disciples, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer, talking about Judas, had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. 
And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi, and kissed him. So Judas lets the chief priest, he lets the elders of the people know, hey, the one I'm going to kiss, that's Jesus. That's the one. Maybe it's extremely dark because it's in the middle of the night. Maybe they didn't have enough lighting to, to be able to recognize who Jesus was. So Judas was going to give them a sign, likely kissing Jesus on the cheek, pretending to have love for Jesus. What a betrayal this was. Think about this from Jesus' perspective. Judas, whom Jesus has shown nothing but love to, whom he's poured his life into, whom he has cared for, whom he has taken under his wing, comes up to Jesus knowing that he is there to betray him and kisses him and says, Greetings, Rabbi, as if he has love for Jesus. He's still acting like he loves Jesus. So now on top of the pain that Jesus feels from the fact that he's choosing to allow himself to be crucified, he now experiences the pain of blatant betrayal by someone close to him. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Jesus is like, man, just do what you got to do. Don't pretend like you have love for me if you don't actually love me. Jesus is not here for any fake kind of love. He prefers us to be honest with him. If we love him, then let's say that we love him. If we don't love him, let's not pretend and play the church game like we actually love him. Jesus tells Judas, hey, just do what you came to do. You can, you can, you can stop acting as if you love me. And then continuing on in verse 50, it says, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. This is where everything that Jesus was dealing with and everything that Jesus was going through changes from just mental and emotional and inner anguish to now actually having them physically seize him. They physically put their hands on him. I don't know about the high school you came up in, but in the high school I came up in, there was always a lot of drama. There was always a lot of people who were against each other. And one of the things that I would often hear is, hey, you can say anything you want to, but don't put your hands on me. But you better not put your hands on me. They come to Jesus and seize him. They've grabbed him. This is where all the physical pain that he endures begins. From this point on, he'll be grabbed, he'll be pushed, he'll be pulled, he'll be hit, and eventually be crucified. The very hands that he created have seized him. His creation believes it can exert physical force over its creator, using the very strength that the creator provided. Continue on in verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Pause. Before we get into anything else, first of all, I just didn't know that the disciples was carrying like that. Like, I just didn't know the disciples was packing swords, like, in the tunic and was just ready for whatever was about to pop off. But apparently, one of the disciples does this, and likely he's aiming to take off the head of this guy who's there. I don't think anyone swings a sword aiming for the ear. The disciple tries to defend Jesus. Let's continue on verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. It's a very key rhetorical question Jesus begins to ask. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scripture be fulfilled that it must be so? 
All right, so to recap a few things that have just gone on in this narrative, I want to make sure I point out just how in control Jesus currently is of this whole situation. Jesus is in complete control of everything that is happening. We can tell that because Jesus chose Gethsemane specifically to be the place that he was captured. If you recall, during the Last Supper, Jesus actually told Judas to go ahead and leave and do what he had to do because he knew that it was time for Judas to betray him. It's also believed that Jesus and his disciples would have gone to the Garden of Gethsemane fairly frequently. And so Jesus goes there in the middle of the night instead of going back to Bethany where he had gone in many of the days prior. Jesus was in complete control. We also know that Jesus could tell when they were coming. He told his disciples to, to keep watch for him. And then when Judas comes in, he tells Judas, hey, just do what you came to do. Jesus chose Gethsemane specifically that he might be captured there. But another thing that shows that Jesus was in complete control is everything that Jesus does to reveal to us that he was allowing them to capture him. When the disciple slices off the servant's ear, Jesus tells him to put his sword down and tells him, don't you know that I could appeal to God the Father and at once he would send out legions of angels ready for battle. That term legions would, use, would be used to refer to thousands of Roman soldiers. Jesus is saying, hey, if I just called out to the Father and appealed to him, he would send thousands upon thousands of angels ready to fight and ready to defend me. Don't you know that I'm allowing this? To happen? Jesus is in control. He's, he's communicating to everyone, hey, guys, I'm the one that's in control here. Yeah, they have the swords, they have the clubs, but I am in control. And then on top of that, let's look at what he says in verse 55. At, the, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Here's a key sentence that Jesus states. Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. Jesus, Jesus is saying, hey, I've been in the temple all week. I've been in the public in the day all week. You saw me there. Everyone saw me there. I was teaching publicly in Jerusalem. And mind you, the Pharisees had already said, had already told everyone, hey, if you see Jesus in Jerusalem, let us know so we can come and arrest him. And Jesus came to Jerusalem because the people didn't know if Jesus was even going to come. He shows up. Not only does he show up, he, he's paraded through the streets on Sunday. And then on a couple other days, he's in the middle of the temple causing a stir and teaching, and they do nothing to him. Jesus is saying, hey, when you saw me earlier, you didn't want to do anything, and now you, now you want all the smoke, right? Like, now you're coming with the swords. Now you're coming with the clubs in the middle of the night. Jesus was allowing them to capture him. He let them capture him. He chose the place so that they would be able to capture him. And this is an extremely hostile and intense environment and situation, so much so, again, that one of the disciples pulls out his sword and slices a man's ear off, and Jesus is calm and meek. In fact, in one of the other Gospels, we see that he put the man's ear back on him. Not only is Jesus in control of the whole situation, Jesus is in control of himself. 
He's in full control of his actions. He's going through an extremely difficult time. This is a very hostile situation. He's about to suffer in incredible ways. He's about to suffer the greatest act of darkness ever committed where where mankind kills God, and he's still loving, honest Jesus in complete control, in complete control of everything that's happening, in complete control of himself as well. I believe when we look at what unfolds here in the Garden of Gethsemane, when we see Jesus' relentless obedience in all of his suffering and all of his anguish and all of the mental and emotional torment that he endured, especially given the fact that he's about to endure the greatest act of evil and cosmic treason that mankind has ever committed, including the fact that he's allowing the very hands that he created to beat him and torture him, including the fact that he's going to continue to provide breath to those who are going to mock him. He's going to continue to provide strength to those that are going to use that strength to beat him and crucify him. He's going to continue to provide life to those that are taking his life from him. He still remains obedient to the Father and remains in complete control of everything going on around him. We're able to see very clearly that even though everything in this looks and feels like Jesus is taking an L, like Jesus is taking a loss, he's actually never been more victorious. That he stands here victoriously. What he does when he dies on the cross is a victory. I like how Paul talks about it in Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 and 15, where he writes, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So the record of debt against us, our, our sins were nailed to the cross, Paul is saying. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The Apostle Paul is saying that God the Father, through Jesus Christ, is putting his enemies to open shame, that the kingdom of darkness and all of its authorities are being put to public shame as they are being defeated as Jesus dies on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was a victory. It was a triumph, which means his obedience in Gethsemane was a victory and a triumph as well. And it's important that we note what Jesus says in verse 54, after making the point that he, would, he could appeal to the Father and the Father would have sent legions of angels to protect him from his enemies. Look at what said in, Jesus says in verse 54. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus says, I could appeal to the Father and he would send legions, thousands upon thousands of angels to come and protect me, to come and guard me, to come and fight for me. But he says, but if I would have done that, how would the scriptures be fulfilled? Jesus is saying that if, if, if that happened, then, then those holy scriptures wouldn't come to pass as it was, as they were stated, as they were written. What's Jesus' point here? If he did not go through the horrible process of the cross, then the scriptures will be null and void and we would not be saved. We would not be rescued from our sins. Because, see, ever since Genesis, there's been this this prophecy, this promise of a Savior who's going to come and going to defeat Satan and undo all the wrong that has been done in the world because of sin. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 where it writes, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. See, Adam had just sinned against God, and now there's this curse on God's creation that is causing pain, that is causing suffering. There's going to be so much death now that occurs because of this sin, and sin is also corrupting mankind in so many profound ways. But God promises here, right after they they sin, that he's going to send one that's going to defeat Satan and is going to win back everything that was lost when Adam didn't make the sacrifice to obey in the Garden of Eden. And see, I don't think it's a coincidence. See, in the Old Testament, Adam failed to be obedient in a garden, and because of that, the world became lost and subject to corruption and condemnation. And here at the beginning of the New Testament, Jesus triumphs mightily through his obedience also in a garden, and because of that, the world can now know restoration and salvation. I like to say that you can summarize the story of the Bible in three phases. Number one, God made everything good. Number two, sin messed everything up. Number three, in Jesus Christ, God is making everything right again. The failure that led to everything being messed up in the garden and the the failure that led to everything being messed up occurred in the garden and the obedience that leads to everything being made right also occurred in the garden. Jesus won where Adam lost. Jesus succeeded where Adam had failed. Jesus triumphed where Adam was defeated. This great victory from Jesus came through costly sacrificial obedience that looked like a loss at the time. Obviously, we know what happened in three days, but at that time, it looked like a loss. And if we are going to follow him, the same will be said of us because Jesus, through his obedience, opens our eyes to the truth that true victory doesn't look the way most people think it will, also, it will often look. Excuse me. And he empowers us to walk in true victory over sin because he defeated the power that sin had over us because of his obedience. So then discipleship and Christian maturity actually looks like us beginning to reorient ourselves and have a better understanding of what winning looks like and what losing actually looks like. We, 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 are, we grow as disciples of Jesus when we begin to embrace God's eternal standpoint on what is a win and what is actually a loss. Let me, let me try to explain with an example. We were at a men's event here at Midtown Two Notch. We had just finished shooting paintball. It was extremely fun. And we were walking back to our cars, and one of the guys was referring to and telling us about a a conversation or an argument that he was having with his significant other at the time. In this argument, he thought he was right. And I can't remember if it was his girlfriend or his wife or fiance. She thought she was right. And he noticed that how the conversation, how the argument was going, that it just wasn't beneficial. So he ended up saying, so you know what? I just, I, I just took the loss. I just took the L and I, I, just, I just let it go. It wasn't worth it. So I just, I just took the L and I just let it go. And then one of us who were there, I can't remember exactly who it was, said to him, no, 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 no. You didn't take a loss. You took a win. You prioritizing this relationship with your significant other and not trying to prove yourself to be right over and over again to the detriment of your relationship was actually you taking a win. You thought that you were taking a loss because it wasn't worth it. Actually, you took a win because you knew it was worth it. 
because you knew that that relationship actually was worth it. And so one of the things that we have tried to do that, that were there at, at that time was trying to refer to things in our lives that might feel like losses that are actually wins for the kingdom of God. We've tried to correct our language, correct how we talk about it, and refer to them as wins instead. I've had conversations since then with brothers talking about difficulties in, in relationships and things that we should do. And I've, I've heard it said over and over again, no, 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 take that, take that win. Take that win. Don't, don't try to push yourself. Don't try to just win the argument, but try to win those that you love and those that you are in relationship with. The truth is, oftentimes, L's feel like W's and W's feel like L's. Sometimes victory comes at a cost, but what great victory doesn't cost you something? What great triumph wasn't earned through much strain and much struggle? Family, my goal for the rest of our time today, in light of Jesus' great triumph in the Garden of Gethsemane, my goal is that I will use the rest of this time to help us further understand the, how glorious the victories that Christ give us through obedience actually are to help us reorient ourselves, that we wouldn't simply see something as a loss just because it is difficult, but we will see it as a win if it moves us towards Jesus's glorious purposes in the earth, if it leads us towards God's kingdom coming and God's will being done here in the earth. Family, I want to encourage us today that when you're biting your tongue and everything in you wants to, wants to be petty and retaliate, when you bite your tongue and you are slow to speak and quick to listen, it's actually a win. It's actually a W because you're growing in Christ's likeness. It shows that the Holy Spirit of God has been faithful to continue to work in you and change you and transform you and sanctify you and make you more and more like him. For some of us, being able to bite our tongue is evidence that God has not given up on us. It's evidence that God is still at work, that God is still transforming us. Family, that is a win. That is a win. And as I preached on last week, being financially generous for the glory of Christ and for his work is always a win. It's always a win because you're giving away money that you cannot keep and gaining eternal treasure that you can never lose. Family, that is a win. Or maybe if you're single or maybe in a dating relationship and not, not getting into a relationship that will lead you into sin or potentially lead you away from God because you're experiencing very real sadness and loneliness, but, but, but protecting yourselves from relationships that might harm you spiritually is a win. It's a win. No matter how it feels, it is a win. Or for some of us, sacrificing things that we might like to do so that we can spend time with the one that can actually restore our souls is eternally a win. It's always a win for us. Denying ourselves from yielding to, to sinful, lustful temptation is a win. Whether it's, just you and a, whether it's just you and a computer screen and nobody will know, or whether maybe, again, maybe if you're single and you're tired of being lonely and you just want to feel connected with someone in an intimate way, or maybe even if you're married and your marriage you feel has just lost its spark and you just want a thrill or you just want something exciting, every time you say no to temptation, it is a win. It is a win worth celebrating every time. 
It is a win, and he gives us the ability to walk in the freedom to experience victories for the kingdom of God over and over again. Or maybe you're at work, and you're doing, a, and you're doing your job well, exactly the way that you are supposed to, because you work as unto the Lord and not unto man. Every time you remain faithful when you're tempted to maybe cut corners or not do what you were, exactly what you were told to do, family, that is a win, It's a win because you're honoring the one who is truly worthy of honor and worship. It's a win because you are representing him faithfully because as you work as a faithful employee, you are showing off the God who is eternally faithful to his people and faithful to do all the work that he promised that he will do. And family, every time... We do anything, whether that's a quiet time, whether that's worshiping through song, whether that's meditating on the word of God. Maybe it's what you're doing now and sitting and listening to the proclaimed word of God. Every time we do anything that helps us to cultivate love for our God, it is a win. You are drinking from the fountain of living water that flows from heaven that satisfies more than anything else in this world can offer us. Family, that is a win. Jesus died so that we could have unhindered relationship with God and we get to enjoy being with him every single day. And if we have to make sacrifices to do that, so be it, because that is the win. That is the ultimate win, to be able to be with God and know him and walk with him through this life, trusting that he will carry us mightily, lovingly, in all of his grace and mercy into the next life to be with him eternally. Family, that is a win. And anything that we sacrifice so that we can know him more is us sacrificing pennies so that we can have true eternal riches with him forever. It's a win. We must seek to see wins and losses the way that our God does. We must seek to to take up the wins that, that, that we have opportunity to take just like our Savior did in the garden the one that brought salvation to all who believed, who believe, excuse me. It looked like a loss by the world's standards, but it was actually a victory. Jesus was able to truly win because unlike Adam, he was able to clearly see from an an eternal perspective what is actually a win. And as those that have been saved by Jesus' triumph in his tribulation, let us walk in the footsteps of our master and enjoy true victory in him. Family, let me pray for us.